according to the WHO, approximately 287,000 women died during and following pregnancy and childbirth in 2020. Almost 95% of all maternal deaths occurred in low and lower middle income countries, and most of these deaths could have been prevented. Annually, preeclampsia, dubbed the disease of theories, is responsible for over 70,000 maternal deaths and half a million fetal deaths worldwide. For this episode of Transmissible, a public health podcast, we are diving into the fascinating and for me, very personal world of preeclampsia. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Transmissible, a public health podcast. I am your host, Jessica Stahl, and I have my master's of public health in epidemiology. Woo, the degree just came in, and then I have also spent most of my career as a contractor for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. I was in microbiology. At first, I was in the special bacteriology labs. Um, I traveled internationally with CDC. Shout out to India. That was my favorite um, destination to travel to. And then most recently, I was on the um, emergency response for the COVID-19 pandemic. I was on the lab and testing task force as a health communication specialist. And yeah, that's about it. This podcast has nothing to do with CDC or where I've worked or you know where I've gone to school or anything. This is just my public health passion project. And we're just plugging along. I'm kind of new to podcasting. And if you've been listening, you know that. And um, I think the skills are coming along. I think it's getting a little bit better. And I just, I love watching the data come in and I can just, every week our little community is growing. And so thank you so much for um, those who have been supportive and listening and just kind of going in on this project with me. It's just been so fun. Um, I am recording a little bit later today. My promise is that I get episodes out on Wednesday and it is 10.55 p.m. as I'm recording this. I'm going to record it and then I'm going to like edit it in bed (laughs) and then post it. Um, It has just kind of been a crazy week and just a lot going on. I feel like everyone's sick. (laughs) Just everything's going on. Um, So bear with me. My vision is that when you wake up on Thursday, you know, there's an episode. So that's kind of like when I say I'm releasing them on Wednesday, it's really so that Thursday commute to work or that Thursday first cup of coffee, you can tune in and just, um, sit back and learn something about a topic in public health and some science and some history and some epidemiology. And I've just had so much fun doing this so far. We've covered, um, other than kind of some like breaking news stories, we've covered typhus, rabies, public health during wartime. We've done dengue. I think dengue has been my favorite thus far. Last week was Zika. And then this week is preeclampsia and eclampsia. This is very near and dear to my heart. I had preeclampsia with my um, latest pregnancy, my first pregnancy. And it was um, a whirlwind. It was very scary. I knew nothing about it. And as I was laying in the hospital, I was like, you know, let me not Google this until after we're done here. Um, I kind of let my husband, he's a physician. I let him, um, know more about it than me. And I was like, do not tell me about this until we're done. Like usually I want to know all the information I can, but just during this time, my focus was on delivering a baby. So 
that is what I did. And then after I did that, I did the biggest deep dive in the world about preeclampsia and what I realized, and it actually helped me kind of cope and process what just happened to me is I, I went on a really big deep dive in the terms of public health. This is a humongous public health topic. I've known about it, but I didn't know any of the details about it. And it just, it hit so close to home. And I was so grateful for modern medicine and the healthcare infrastructure that I had um, access to. And it just, it really helped me process, you know, the, the magnesium sulfate, we're going to get into it. Basically, it's a drug they give you <laughs> when you have preeclampsia and you're in labor and it makes you it's like being drugged in the worst way. I, I, it was not pleasant. I was throwing up. I was delusional. It really affects your brain. Um, and one of the things that helped me kind of cope with that experience, cause that's obviously not the ideal way you want to deliver a baby is realizing that I was pretty fortunate to have access to it. And so I think that, um, helped me and it was just interesting. And I think as people who are into science and medicine and epidemiology and just whether you work in it or it's just something that you're interested in, I do think it's it's one of those things that eventually it will hit close to home. And one of the ways we process it is by thinking, yeah, that was scary, but that was also a little bit interesting. Why can't it be both? Um, so yeah, I, I've been doing more infectious disease leaning topics. So this this week is not infectious disease and it's also just very personal. So I'm excited to jump into it. I'm excited to teach you guys a little bit about it. And as always, I would love feedback. I would love um, if I get something wrong and you're like, ooh, that bugs me. That is going out to a lot of people. Well, not a lot, like with a little asterisk next to it. Um, and you want it corrected, like shoot me a um, message on Twitter. I'm at Public Health Adjust, J-E-S, or Transmissible Pod on TikTok trying to keep up with the kids. I'm on TikTok. And so just shoot me a correction. I can issue that correction or you can jump on the pod. I can interview you while you tell me more about it. So just wanted to throw that out there. And yeah, I think that's about it. Let's dive in. So I was trying to think of how I wanted to do this and I didn't know if I should tell my story first and then tell you guys about it or if I should put my story within it, like within the factoids. So I think I'm going to tell you a little bit of the story and then we'll jump into it and maybe then kind of continue the story through the facts. But basically, um, the, in the year of 2022, I was pregnant. I am a type one diabetic. I knew going into this, I had a higher risk of certain issues that arise during pregnancy. I knew I was at a higher risk for preeclampsia. My doctors told me that when you have type one diabetes, you are automatically put into MFM, which is maternal fetal medicine, and that's for high-risk pregnancies. So I immediately was high-risk, which means you get just like so many more check-ins, so many more ultrasounds. They started me on baby aspirin at 12 weeks. That was for um, the prevention or the delaying of preeclampsia. Again, this whole time I'm like not doing a deep dive. I just... I was very overwhelmed by pregnancy. I had a lot going on and I was like, you know, if, if that, <laughs> if that issue arises, I will handle it when it gets there. And, um, I mean, I guess that's kind of what we did, but so I knew going into it around 22 weeks, I start feeling funny. My neck is tight. They do an MRI. Nothing comes up. Okay. 
fast forward, that's just kind of like a, a side note that, that actually doesn't come really into play because they did not pinpoint what was going on with my neck. But I, I have always kind of wondered, like, was that my blood pressure kind of like, uh, starting to bump up a little bit, but, um, so every, at one point it was every two weeks and then towards the end, it was every week I was going in to the hospital. They're checking my blood pressure. They're checking my urine. You know, we're doing blood work here and there. My iron levels were kind of wonky. Um, but my blood pressure is just like perfect all the way through. Um, I naturally have pretty low blood pressure. So it's, it's checking, you know, we're good, we're good, we're good. I'm at 36 weeks, you know, pregnancy is usually about 40 weeks. I'm at 36 weeks and all of a sudden my feet are swelling and I just feel like I'm going to explode. I remember Snapchatting my friend the day I was admitted to the hospital and I was like, I just feel like I'm going to burst. There is no way I can go three more weeks because I was getting towards the end of the 36th week, 36th week. And it, I just felt like I was going to explode that night, the night before I Snapchatted her that I could not sleep because I could not breathe. Now that should have risen an alarm, but this is my first time being pregnant. So I don't know. I just think, oh, this is like the last three weeks of pregnancy. I'm massive. So maybe that's why I can't breathe. So I go in for my weekly check-in, they do my blood pressure and lo and behold, it's high. So, you know, the, the alarms are going off because I've had really good blood pressure the whole time. They test my urine and I have protein in my urine. So preeclampsia is, you know, just picture it being like pinned on the wall. Like here it is. It has come <laughs> to roost. So I'm immediately admitted to the hospital. They hold me for two days right at the 36th mark, 36th week mark. They induce me to get this baby out of there because the best way you can quote unquote treat preeclampsia, eclampsia is by delivery. So that's what we do. They put me on mag sulfate and I'm just like totally out of it. It's like being high in the worst way. <laughs> it, the, the pain's not gone. The negative, anything negative you're feeling is not gone, but your ability to problem solve is just not there. I'm kind of like loopy. I'm out of it. My words, I'm having a hard time with words. My vision gets really hit. Um, you know, they're testing me because the, with mag sulfate, you can overdose on it. And so it's just like this whole thing. I'm puking. It's like, it's a whole thing. Um, I was not a fan. Long story short, deliver the baby. Baby's healthy. I'm healthy. My blood pressure immediately goes down. I'm just, I never have another issue again. Um, so that is my story of preeclampsia. Again, very thankful for modern medicine, good healthcare infrastructure that I had access to, and just my ability to go to the appointments. Like one of the really challenging things with maternal care is just can the patient get to the appointment? In so many cases, that's really hard. Um, here in America, that's challenging in different and lower socioeconomic, um, populations that's challenging. And there's a lot of populations where it's, it's very challenging internationally, very hard. So we'll, we'll get into that. I don't want to like jump the gun, but, um, access to healthcare, but access to those weekly check-ins. I mean, it was like challenging for me to get in there. And I remember thinking like, 
I don't have any kids. At the time I was working from home on the COVID response and I was doing school, but like both of those are pretty flexible when you're working remotely, you know, with a bunch of public health workers leaving to go to your, you know, high risk pregnancy appointment is no big deal. And, um, I just, I, as I was going through the motions, I felt very privileged and just grateful that I had access and I could use the access that I had. Um, so that's my story and let's jump into it. Cause if you don't know what preeclampsia is or eclampsia is, um, that just sounds like kind of a weird story. So like, let's jump in. So what is preeclampsia and what is eclampsia? Why is there one? And then there's another one that has a pre in front of it. So preeclampsia, and for the record, I used the preeclampsia foundations website for so much of this. It's an amazing resources. A lot of this, I took their verbiage and I am regurgitating it. So just credit to them. They have a wonderful website. So preeclampsia is persistent high blood pressure that develops during pregnancy or during the postpartum period and is often associated with high levels of protein in the urine or the new development of decreased blood platelets, trouble with kidneys or liver, fluid in the lungs, or signs of brain trouble such as seizures or visual disturbances. So that's preeclampsia. Eclampsia. I have a tendency to say eclampsia, but it's eclampsia, like um, soft E, (laughs) is a very serious complication of preeclampsia characterized by one or more seizures during pregnancy or in the postpartum period. In the developed world, they use the word developed world. Um, I kind of like like higher income world, but you know, to each their own with their verbiage there. Eclampsia is rare and usually treatable if appropriate intervention is promptly sought. Left untreated, eclampsia seizures can result in coma, brain damage, and possibly maternal or infant death. (laughs) Heavy, heavy stuff. So eclampsia sorry, preeclampsia is named because it was originally identified as a disorder preceding eclampsia, although it is now known that eclamptic eclamptic seizures are only one of the several potential complications of the disease. Eclamptic seizures usually occur as a later complication of severe preeclampsia, but may also arise without any prior signs of severe disease. So it's kind of, you'll see I said in the intro, but this disease is dubbed the disease of theories because there's a lot of um, associations and, you know, there's just a lot of weird, weird, the layman's term, there's a lot of weirdness in the preeclampsia disease. It is a human pregnancy specific. It's just fascinating. Okay, we'll get into it. So a common pathological feature of preeclampsia is the failure of maternal arteries supplying the placenta to undergo the physiological adaptions of normal pregnancy that facilitate adequate placental perfusion. And that is cut straight out of this wonderful paper. It's called The Role of Spiral Arteries in the Pathogenesis of Preeclampsia. So basically, there's preeclampsia and there's eclampsia you typically think of it as if you get preeclampsia like I did, you're trying to ward off eclampsia, which is the seizures. Um, That's what my family and my husband were worried is that I was going to have a seizure. 
um, or a stroke, and I was just sitting there in my ignorance bubble. All right, risk factors. So what are the risk factors for preeclampsia? And some of these (laughs) I have, so I will point those out. But So the conditions that are associated with a moderate risk of developing preeclampsia include first pregnancy with current partner, obesity, family history of preeclampsia, maternal age of 35 or older, complications in a previous pregnancy, or if it's been more than 10 years since your last pregnancy. The conditions that are linked to a higher risk of preeclampsia, so the other one is moderate, this one's higher, risk of preeclampsia include preeclampsia in a previous pregnancy, if your partner's old partner, so like, okay, say, say you get pregnant with this new man, but his old partner, so his like first pregnancy with someone else, if she got preeclampsia, you yourself are more likely to get preeclampsia. And they say that that, they're not exactly sure why, but that shows that there is a paternal genetic link going on there. So you can blame, you can blame the man. Um, okay. I lost my train of thought. Um, being pregnant with more than one baby. So this is for the higher risk, chronic high blood pressure, type one or type two diabetes. That's me. I have type one diabetes, kidney disease, autoimmune disorders, use of IVF. Um, or so this is really interesting. Also, if this is like the first or not the first, but you know, one of the first times you're having sex with someone and you get pregnant, you have a higher risk then. And they think it's because the maternal immune system is not used to this man. And, um, I thought that was really interesting. I did not deep dive on that subject. I don't know if they know much about that subject though, but it's just kind of fascinating. Um, it just preeclampsia is weird. Preeclampsia is super weird. All right. So those are the risk factors. So what are the symptoms and how do they test for this? So some important symptoms of preeclampsia, and I had some of these, are headaches, abdominal pain, shortness of breath, or burning behind the sternum, nausea and vomiting, confusion, heightened state of anxiety, or visual disturbances such as oversensitivity to light, blurred vision, seeing flashing spots or auras. That was something I knew they told me, like, if you start seeing flashing spots, um, call us because you're going to get admitted. So I knew that to look for that. I never had that. Preeclampsia and related hypertensive disorders of pregnancy impact five to 8% of all births in the United States. Okay. So how is this diagnosed? Preeclampsia is diagnosed by the elevation of the expectant patient's blood pressure, usually after the 20th week of pregnancy and is unique to human pregnancies. According to the guidelines released by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the diagnosis of preeclampsia no longer requires the detection of high levels of protein in the urine. Evidence shows that problems with the kidneys and livers can occur without the protein in the urine. So that was a big shift because it it was always kind of the gold standard was blood pressure and protein in urine. But now they're saying, you don't even need that protein in urine. It could just be your blood pressure and damage is already happening. HELP syndrome is one of the more severe forms of preeclampsia. Why did I put this here? I feel like that should have gone before this. Um, Part of me learning to podcast is learning how to set up my outlines, and I think I'm getting a lot better. My typhus outline was... It it was just not how I I would do it now. But sometimes I, like, stick something. (laughs) Um, This probably should have been with... 
probably have the intro on like what preeclampsia is, but let's just let's just get into it. If you're here now, you're here through the labor pains of learning, pun intended, of me learning how to podcast. So HELP syndrome is one of the more severe forms of preeclampsia and occurs in 5 to 12% of preeclamptic patients, and it can lead to substantial injury of the mother's liver, a breakdown of her red blood cells and lowered platelet count. HELP stands for hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, lower and lowered platelets. So that's the H-E-L, um, it's actually H-E-L-E-L-P, but we're eliminating the E from enzymes. HELP syndrome may initially be mistaken for the flu or gallbladder problems because the pain may feel similar and can occur before the classic symptoms of preeclampsia occur. So this is something that comes with preeclampsia, not eclampsia. So when you think of like the scariness of preeclampsia, it's that it's going to go to eclampsia. They're saying HELP syndrome can also happen as well. So just another, just another thing that's weird and scary about preeclampsia. So back to testing and symptoms. So testing, the, the gold standard is always blood pressure and protein. Now they're saying you don't need the protein but, and you may have seen this in the news, this was like a really big deal. I saw it all over my social media. I'm, I'm of uh, pregnancy age, so I feel like all of a sudden, I'm 32, all of a sudden my social media went from like parties and college, and then it was, you know, post-grad and a little partying and people were getting married, and now it is just like babies and pregnancy. Um, and this went absolutely viral. I just saw so many people posting about it, and but basically it's a Blood is a new, newly approved by the FDA blood test that can help doctors in the United States predict earlier and more accurately whether a woman will develop severe preeclampsia during pregnancy. This is first of its kind. This was a huge deal. And it works by detecting SFLT1 and PIGF, which are two proteins in the blood that can predict poor outcomes from preeclampsia with substantially better accuracy than the current methods. And the test, um, they give it to you between 23 and 25 weeks of pregnancy. Um, and it really helps because it can help you prepare. It can help, um, you know, you can be like more aggressive with certain measures. And this is a really big deal. It will be interesting. This is kind of new. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, as the years go on, how this is used and just like in real time, uh, clinical spaces, what the feedback is. So I thought that was exciting. I, I'm sure, well, I'm definitely going to ask for this test. We would like to have another child. So I know for my second pregnancy, um, it, you know, preeclampsia is definitely something I'm going to be looking out for. And so I, if they don't offer me this test, I will probably be asking for this test and hopefully I'm still podcasting. I would love to still be podcasting then. And I will, uh, let you guys know how it goes. So treatment, what do they do when you have preeclampsia? I kind of talked about this a little bit at the beginning when I told my story, but low dose aspirin is key. They give it to you at the 20 or the, um, sorry, at the 12 week mark, taking it before then doesn't really do much. And it is just to prevent or delay. So who knows when I would have gotten you know, the blood pressure spike if I had not been taking baby aspirin since the 12-week mark. There are many factors that guide the healthcare professional's decision on how to manage preeclampsia. This includes the gestational age and health of the baby, the overall health and age of the mother, 
and just a really careful assessment of how the disease is progressing. They're going to monitor the blood pressure really carefully and just kind of like doing a lot of blood work, seeing how your labs are looking and specifically testing kidneys, liver, and the ability of your blood to clot. Um, the gold standard is getting to 37 weeks, but you know, sometimes you get, you know, the blood pressure spike. Hopefully I've not been saying blood sugar. I'm a diabetic, so I say blood sugar all the time, but blood pressure, we are only talking about blood pressure today. Um, you get that blood pressure spike. If you get it, you know, at 32 weeks, 33 weeks, they might try to push it along. I got mine at, you know, 36 and five days. So they just kept me for two days, but, um, you know, they will usually try to gain some time, but if it's at 37 weeks or later, the provider will opt to deliver the baby and the definitive treatment of preeclampsia and eclampsia is the delivery of the fetus direct quote <laughs> from the website on that one. So that's what happened with me. And, you know, as soon as I delivered all was well, but we did still, um, you have to get a bunch of checks because you can, you can still get it after you deliver. Technically it's the delivery of the placenta. It's not necessarily the baby. It's the placenta that relieves the issues, but you can, you can get it postpartum. So you have to monitor your blood pressure really carefully. The, they kept me for like four days after they were monitoring it a lot. Um, but then when, when I went home, we monitored it still. Um, cause of course we do, we have like so many <laughs> things at home. We have all these things that they have in uh, hospitals here. Like for our baby, we have like a really legit scale. And then I've been told by so many pediatricians, like, cause we're kind of having some weight gain issues there. It's like, don't have a scale at home. It's just going to make you stress out. And it's like, mm, I want more data. So that's what we did with blood pressure. We were monitoring a lot and it just never spiked again. So magnesium sulfate is the treatment of choice if the healthcare facility has it. So here in the U.S., if you go to the hospital and you have preeclampsia, they're going to most likely give you the option for magnesium sulfate. In lower income countries, in rural, lower income areas, um, they may not have the magne magnesium sulfate itself or trained professionals. We're going to get into that a little bit down the line in the global epi part of this podcast. And that's a really interesting part to me. But basically, mag sulfate, as they call it, is given to. So most doctors will give, not all, but many, will treat every single preeclamptic patient with mag sulfate during labor, even if the disease appears mild. Um, technically, I think it used to be that you would only give it for severe preeclampsia, but now it's just like, why not? Um, you can receive this in the ICU or labor and delivery unit. It, but while you are given it, you're observed super closely. They're monitoring all these different things. They're specifically monitoring um, your bladder output, so your urine output. One of the complications is that that goes down. When, for me example, the nurse couldn't just give me mag sulfate. It was like a big bolus. So it's like in an IV and she, you know, she clicks a button and it like, like drains it all into you. That's what a bolus is. It's like a big, like when I'm, I'm a diabetic. When I give insulin, if I'm doing it for a meal, I might give like five units at a time. That's a bolus. So she gave me a bolus, but she couldn't just give it. She had to bring in another nurse to watch her do it because the risk for overdose is very severe. You can die from an overdose of mag sulfate. And so just everything around it is very closely observed. 
they do um, certain tests on you to make sure you're okay. It, it, it's a whole thing. Meanwhile, I'm like puking my brains out. You get really hot. Um, so you're like confused. It's hot. You're puking. But um, as we'll see in this uh, next part, it it does make the pregnancy safer. So in 2002, why did I say that way? Oh, because I'm used to saying 2020. In 2002, the Magpie trial, this is a huge finding, reported that women with severe preeclampsia who were given magnesium sulfate had a 58% lower risk of developing eclampsia compared to the placebo group. So that's the, you know, the relative. Now let's talk about the absolute risk. The absolute risk went from 1.9% to 1.1%. And I do remember this from the hospital because you're given the option to refuse um, or accept the mag sulfate. And they basically told us it's like, Two in a hundred, you're currently at two in a hundred. This will take you to one in one hundred, you know. And we were like, "Yeah, let's do it." <laughs> um, but this magpie study was huge. It just, it, it is the study, and it's because you know they were able to see that that drug, as opposed to some other drugs that they had kind of used off and on, that mag sulfate was um, the heaviest hitter. So like I said, one of the issues with mag sulfate is the technician has to be really skilled. And in lower income countries, I was reading about this, it was really interesting on the Preclampsia Foundation website. But so there are all these nonprofits who are trying to, you know, get mag sulfate to lower income countries and hospitals in those countries that don't have access to um, really good health care. And so they were bringing in mag sulfate. But the issue was, is they would come back and it would still be there. They weren't using it. And they asked them why. And it was reported that they were nervous to use it because they didn't feel super confident in the delivery because they knew that, you know, taking it from a basically 2% to 1%, I mean, that's a great bump down, but mag sulfate can kill you too. So, you know, you had this nursing staff, technicians, um, I think they said that was who was delivering it in most of these hospitals. They just didn't feel confident that it was w- worth risking, that they didn't know what they were doing totally to the T to take it from 2% to 1%, which I get. That makes a lot of sense to me. And so it showed that there was a need not only in getting mag sulfate to these hospitals and to these clinics, but also that training was super important. Um, and I mean, I, I just think it's cool because I saw I saw that training in action and I saw how, this was at UAB Hospital, how meticulous they were about when they were giving the delivery. So if education is limited, um, you know, you can have all the tools, but if you don't know how to use them, that's the same way in laboratory science. You know, you can have the PCR machine, you can have the MALDI, you can have all this stuff, but if you don't know how to use it or if you don't know how to use it properly, you know, sterile technique comes to mind, that kind of stuff, then, you know, it's not going to be as effective. So this is a nice segue into the global epidemiology portion of this podcast. This personally is my favorite portion when we get into the global epi stats, but these are the stats I said at the very beginning, but I kind of just want to shout them out again. They're sobering numbers. They're just heartbreaking numbers. And it's that the WHO says that approximately 287,000 women, that's almost 300,000 women, died during and following pregnancy and childbirth in 2020. And 
approximately 95% of all maternal deaths occurred in low and lower income countries also in 2020, and most of these could have been prevented. Annually, preeclampsia itself is responsible for over 70, sorry, 70 maternal deaths and a half a million fetal deaths worldwide. Um, postpartum hemorrhage, which is bleeding, is also one of the big reasons for maternal deaths, and that also has about 70,000 maternal deaths, just to give you some um, comparable numbers of how severe of an issue this is. What I thought was interesting, and I, it, I, I would like to do a, a deeper dive into this, um, but I did not prepare it for this podcast, is that Preeclampsia and eclampsia account for an estimated of 9% of maternal deaths in Asia and Africa, but approximately one quarter, so 25% of maternal deaths in Latin America and the Caribbean come from preeclampsia and eclampsia. So that is a pretty wide difference. 9% Asia and Africa, 25% in Latin America and the Caribbean. I, I thought that was a really interesting statistic. Something else I thought was interesting, and this is a from a really interesting paper. It's called It Takes a System, Magnesium Sulfate for Prevention of Eclampsia in a Resource-Limited Community Setting. This was written by Goldberg and McClure. I, I'm going to link it in the body of the podcast. It's a really interesting paper, but um, I'm quoting them here. It says that 100 years ago in high-income countries, eclampsia occurred in about 70 per 10,000 pregnancies, and the maternal case fatality rate in women with eclampsia was about 20 to 40%, super high. Today, again in high-income countries, eclampsia occurs in less than one in 10,000 pregnancies, and the case fatality rate among women with eclampsia, so among that one in 10,000, is less than 1%. Thus, the improvements occurred both in the progression of eclampsia to, sorry, preeclampsia to eclampsia and the case fatality rates of women who developed eclampsia with both complications reduced by about 99%. Most of the reductions in maternal mortality occurred between 1930 and 1970. During those years, substantial advances occurred in the increased use of antenatal care with more visits late in pregnancy. So remember when I said every week I was going and they were checking me and then one week they caught it? That's exactly what this is. Um, sorry, I lost my spot. With more visits late in pregnancy, better screening for hypertension and protein in urine during those visits, increased hospitalizations for women with eclampsia, and in those hospitals, more rapid delivery for women with eclampsia and preeclampsia. And again, this is from the paper, It Takes a System, Magnesium Sulfate for Prevention of Eclampsia in a Resource-Limited Community Setting. I will link it. Really, really interesting. Another thing I wanted to touch on, because I think this is really important, is that in the United States, the rate of eclampsia in black women is 60% higher than in white women. And not only are black women more likely to to develop eclampsia, but they are more likely to experience poorer outcomes with the conditions such as kidney damage and death. I recently was on Twitter. Y'all know I love Twitter, (laughs) like addicted to Twitter. And what's so interesting about the algorithm now, it's a little more sensitive, is as I'm researching for my topics of the week, it starts to come across in my timeline. 
and I saw a really interesting thread, interesting, maybe not the correct word, frustrating thread of a black female physician. She was in the hospital. I'll find the tweet and I'll, I'll link it because I thought it was really interesting. Um, in the hospital, basically it was her advocating for herself because they were going to send her home with a higher blood pressure. And she said, no, I'm staying. Lo and behold, she developed preeclampsia and she potentially saved her life and the life of her baby. So I'll link that, but it's just, it, it fits with the statistic and her thread of it is a good um, picture into some of the frustrations there. So the history of preeclampsia, y'all know I love to throw in a history section of these, is really interesting. It was first described by Hippocrates, we all know Hippocrates, around 400 BC, who stated that headaches accompanied by heaviness and convulsions during pregnancy was considered bad. (laughs) Simple enough, but correct. While this was the earliest recognition of the disease, the only remedies were attempts to bring the body's fluid into balance through altered diet, purging, and bloodletting. I also read that a couple hundred years ago, they would like put you in a really dark room um, with no light, laying down because they were they didn't want to like trigger the seizures. So it was like all about like seizure prevention. Um, so going back, this has been going on a long time. Just hundreds and hundreds of thousands of deaths from preeclampsia. And I just, I just find that so sobering because I had it and I've, I've been in those shoes. So it, it's kind of a bear. They don't know a lot. Again, they've dubbed it the disease of theories because there's a lot of theories, but it's, it's kind of a mystery in some ways. And they don't know like exactly what's going on. Like they don't know how to prevent it. It's just, it's kind of a weird disease. So this was my stab at it. This is obviously not my, uh, specialty. I'm more of like a micro infectious disease girly, but I wanted to take a stab at it. I think it's an important topic. And if you learn something, that's my goal, um, for this podcast. So hopefully my story and kind of some of my deep dives were interesting and gave you something to think about. And yeah, it is, 1140 now. I promised I would get this out (laughs) on Wednesday. I just, we'll see. I got 20 minutes to do that. I might go have a cup of coffee in bed. I, I just drink so much coffee. I don't know if it doesn't affect me or if just my baseline is just caffeinated now, but I drink it before bed. There's nothing cozier to me than just like curling up with my laptop and my coffee and just like reading something. So this will be my project of the night with the coffee. Um, my husband's asleep. My son's asleep. I am, uh, got the house to myself. So fun times and yeah, that's about it. So next week, today's the seventh. So next Wednesday will be Valentine's day. I'm going to release a Valentine's episode, but I, I need to determine what that's going to be. I'm trying to think of like what a good Valentine's topic in public health is. I'm thinking maybe, I think something heart related is too obvious. Maybe something infectious disease. I feel like I'm a little bit more confident when I talk about infectious diseases. Something like preeclampsia is like a little bit intimidating because um, it's it's something that is so scary and so heavy and just has horrible statistics around it. 
and just more women die from it than absolutely need to be and oh, that just breaks my heart and so it's hard to talk about especially when I'm not like an expert in it but um, this was my stab at it so I hope you liked it and again I will put my sources you know a lot of CDC a lot of WHO a lot of preeclampsia foundation they have some really great things and um, those two papers I will link them as well and uh, University of Chicago shout out to the new blood tests coming out that was pretty cool and I will report back when I get that test at some point so yeah I guess that's about it thanks for listening this week putting these out once a week on Wednesdays it's always going to be a topic in public health and this week it was preeclampsia next week I'm thinking I'm thinking I can find some type of infectious disease is Valentine's Day-esque. So we will see. I um, Yeah, I wish, I wish you could comment on Spotify videos. Like I would love to say like comment what you're doing for Valentine's Day, but can't really do that. I guess that would be more for the social medias. I, yeah, I don't know what we're doing. So there's also the Super Bowl, the Super Bowl Sunday coming up. It's the 49ers versus the Kansas City Chiefs. Can't decide who rooting for because I like Brock Purdy, but I also, I just want Taylor Swift and her boyfriend to win. So who knows? I will have to probably decide on game day, uh, who I'm voting for. But, uh, if you follow me on TikTok, comp shout out in the comments, sound off in the comments who you're voting for or not voting for LOL rooting for when it comes to the Super Bowl. But okay. Now I'm just rambling. <laughs> it's time to go. Thank you so much for listening. Please like and subscribe. Give me a review. What have it. It's just fun to see that kind of stuff come in. I just, I'm a data girly at heart. So I just love pulling the analytics. It's just something that's very fun for me. So I appreciate that. I will see you guys next week. And thank you so much for listening. And I just hope you have a good one. Bye.